Bongbong wins, the U.S. ASEAN Special Summit, and Indonesia's place in the world. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Simon Tran Hudis, and today is May 12, 2022. Indonesians don't really see the world in bipolar terms, and that there isn't necessarily, from, from the data, a kind of zero-sum competition there, that it's quite possible to have a very high degree of distrust towards both China and the U.S., that was Ben Bland, director of the Asia-Pacific program at Chatham House. Two other guests joined him, Natasha Kasam, director of the Lowy Institute's Public Opinion and Foreign Policy program, and Evan Laxmana, senior research fellow with the Center on Asia and Globalization at the National University of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. They all sat down with our co-hosts today, Greg Poling and Alina Noor, who discussed the results of their latest poll of Indonesian public opinion on foreign policy. Fascinating stuff therein, and thank you listeners for coming along for the ride. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Hazen Williams in the studio. Hazen is an intern here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program, and actually a former classmate of mine. We took Bahasa Indonesia classes together. Hi, Simon. We're happy to have you on. How's it going, man? It's going well. How are you? I'm doing okay. All right, so let's get started. So a fresh set of trials against Myanmar's ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi has begun. Hazen, can you give us a recap of what's happened in the first of her 11 corruption cases? Well, Aung San Suu Kyi has been charged with at least 18 offenses, which carry a combined maximum jail term of almost 190 years. Wow. The first of the corruption trials centered on whether Su Chi accepted 11.4 kilograms of gold and cash totaling $600,000 from former Yangon Chief Minister Pio Mintain. Although Su Chi dismissed the charges as absurd, the judge handed her a five-year jail term very early into the court proceedings, and this brings her total sentence to 11 years thus far, adding on to jail time for illegally importing walkie-talkies, violating COVID-19 restrictions, and sedition. Wow. I mean, as I understand it, Aung San Suu Kyi is already pretty advanced in age, having been under house arrest for decades and decades. So, Hazen, what has been the reaction to these trials? And of course, before you answer, I think we should say that these charges are obviously trumped up to essentially delegitimize Aung San Suu Kyi, who was democratically elected but was ousted in a coup back in February 2021. Exactly. And the international community largely agrees. The international community has denounced the trials as a farce and demanded Suu Kyi's immediate release. However, the junta has denied special requests from foreign diplomats to visit Suu Kyi while she is on trial, including for special envoys appointed by ASEAN. As Aung San Suu Kyi has long served as the face of Myanmar's democratic hopes, these trials serve as an an important role in the junta's attempts to suppress pro-democratic forces and consolidate power. However, it's important to note that the anti-junta resistance movement since last year's coup draws from a more diverse pool of leadership and symbolic power than Aung San Suu Kyi alone. Another story dominating international headlines is the Philippines' national election. On Monday, May 9th, the Philippines held a pivotal election for the presidency, among thousands of other posts. Frontrunner Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., son of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos, faced a challenge from current Vice President Lenny Robredo. As of the time of recording on Tuesday morning, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. looks poised to win in a landslide. We'll have to wait for the official results, but in the meantime, what is the significance of a Marcos victory? Well, uh, it's a stunning development, frankly, in the return to power for the Marcos family. 
This happened 36 years after Bong Bong's father, Ferdinand Marcos, was toppled in the Democratic People Power Uprising. It's expected that a Bong Bong presidency would provide continuity in many respects from Rodrigo Duterte's strongman presidency. This has set off alarm bells from activists concerned about the future of democracy in the Philippines, particularly given Bong Bong's reliance on online political misinformation and disinformation during his campaign, as well as his promises to shield President Duterte from prosecution for his brutal war on drugs that's killed thousands of people extrajudicially. Beyond that, way back in 1985, the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee in, in, in Congress estimated that the Marcoses stole $10 billion from the country's coffers, probably best exemplified by um, Imelda Marcos's shoe collection. We'll be closely tracking the results from the Philippine elections in the coming days. And for our final news story, let's turn to an important moment we've all been waiting for. The U.S. ASEAN summit is finally here. Uh, President Biden will be joined by leaders from eight of the 10 ASEAN member states at the White House from May 12th to May 13th. What are some key issues to watch out for during the summit, Hazen? Well, first, it wouldn't be an international summit without some discussion of the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. President Biden and his team are likely to use the sidelines of the summit to push the Ukraine issue in pursuit of a coalition against Moscow that extends beyond Europe. However, regional views on the war continue to be mixed as many ASEAN member states continue to be hit by the conflict as prices of oil, gas, grains, and fertilizer continue increasing. A key issue to watch is whether Washington will push the ASEAN leaders to cut back on weapons purchases from Moscow or threaten them with secondary sanctions on Russian oil. Okay, so is anything else on the docket? Well, the summit also presents an opportunity to discuss deepening trade relations, which is a key part of what ASEAN wants as part of the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, CSP, framework, which has been negotiated since October. ASEAN already has a CSP with China and Australia. And to signal its interest in rebuilding trade relations in the region, the Biden administration is developing its Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, also referred to as IPEF, which will include different modules covering fair and resilient trade, supply chain resilience, infrastructure and decarbonization, and tax and anti-corruption. Countries can choose the modules they are interested in to join in. Great. Well, so what has been ASEAN's response to IPEF? So far, the regional reception of IPEF has been lukewarm as it's not offering access to U.S. markets, which is a challenge for the administration. Collectively, the ASEAN's 10 member states make up the third largest economy in Asia and the seventh largest in the world with a combined GDP of $2.4 trillion. The U.S. is also lagging China in another area, infrastructure development. The launch of the Build Back Better World Initiative, billed as the healthier alternative to Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative, has been delayed. Wow, so it feels like Washington has a lot of catching up to do. Are there any policy initiatives that the president can tout as a success at this summit? Well, one bright spot that the Biden administration can turn to is its role in vaccine diplomacy. So far, the U.S. has donated over 190 million vaccine doses to ASEAN countries and others in the East Asian Pacific region. The summit is set to build on past investments to fight the pandemic, including the $40 million initiative announced in October to accelerate joint research and strengthen health system capacity through the U.S. ASEAN Health's Futures, which was an initiative launched under the Trump administration. However, because the administration's request for global pandemic response funding is stuck in Congress, the U.S. may not be able to offer what the region needs, money to turn vaccines and vials into shots in arms. All right. Well, up next... 
Greg and Alina's interview with Ben Bland, Evan Laksmana, and Natasha Kassam on the latest Indonesian public opinion polling on foreign policy issues. So stay tuned. Hi, everyone. I'm Elena Noor, and this week I'm joined by my partner in crime, Greg Poling. Hey, everybody. We also have a special treat. We have not one, not two, but three guests on for this episode. We're joined by Benjamin Bland, Director, Asia Pacific Program at Chatham House, Natasha Kassam, Director of the Lowy Institute's Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program, and Evan Laksman, a Senior Research Fellow with the Center on Asia and Globalization at the National University of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Welcome, guys. If you didn't know, these three wonderful experts put out a poll on Indonesia and Indonesia's place in the world. And there were so many things that really struck me with this survey. For me as a Malaysian, what really appeased me was the fact that the Indonesian's poll didn't see Malaysia as so much of a threat right now compared to about 10 years ago. So that was a comfort. But I wonder what it was that really stood out for the three of you, and you might all have very different views on this, in the responses that you got, particularly with the major powers and Indonesia's relations with the US and China, and how they differed from 10 years ago. Maybe I can start with you, Evan, since uh, you're the real deal Indonesian here. Sure. Thanks, Lena, and, and thanks uh, for having me. So two things I think uh, struck me the most. First of all, Indonesia's, I think, self-confidence in its role in the world, in its own president has skyrocketed. But at the same time, they admit that they actually haven't been paying close attention to international affairs in general. So I feel like that particular aspect is also shown in questions like, how much do you know about key foreign policy initiatives or platforms like ASEAN or free and active foreign policy? How much do you follow international affairs? These numbers are all uh, significantly much lower than what I would expect for a nation that believes um, itself to be a, a global leader in many major issues. So that's one. A second striking aspect is sort of the U.S.-China piece. I think previous polls would always suggest that, yes, Indonesia values China. Yes, there are concerns about China, but we're, we're always seen as sort of on the fence, that China at least is valued for economic contribution and potential help with regards to Indonesia's own growth. But I think what the poll shows across 16 different questions, uh, wide-ranging issues from hard to soft power, from economic leadership, investment, all the way down to military leadership and threats and soft power indicators like uh, going to school or travel destination. Across these 16 questions, for me at least, uh, when you put U.S. and China head-to-head comparison, we're not on the fence anymore. Of those 16 questions, I feel like about 12 to 13 actually puts the U.S. ahead of China. Yeah, sure, by a small margin. Yeah, sure that Indonesia's trust of all regional countries and major powers are down in general. But in a head-to-head comparison, the fact that U.S. is leading on traditional areas uh, in which it's normally seen as a China stronghold like investment or any other issues actually uh, tells me that deep down we're not necessarily on the fence anymore. So those are the two major features of the poll that, that seem striking to me. Yeah, just to pick up on what Evan said, I mean, I think while that's true that the US comes out better than China on various measures, what struck me is that Indonesians don't really see the world in bipolar terms. 
and that there isn't necessarily from from the data a kind of zero sum competition there that it's quite possible to have a very high degree of distrust towards both China and the US. Um, so while Washington and Beijing and many other outside powers are trying to kind of pull Indonesians towards them, um, it's quite possible to be suspicious or warm towards different powers for different reasons. I think the second thing I found really interesting, you alluded to Alina as well, was how favorably Malaysia, but also Singapore came out in this, this poll, which is really interesting. And at the same time that Indonesians don't really have much kind of warmth or trust in some of the other further away ASEAN member states. So it seems to be this kind of vision of the region based around the near close cultural and geographic neighbors um, and really less connection uh, with some of the further ASEAN powers um, and really less, um, less of a sense that ASEAN is the most important organization for Indonesia as well internationally. I think one of the things that I find most fascinating about doing surveys anywhere in the world is that people can often hold quite contradictory beliefs and have, you know, quite different views about things that you might expect to all go one way. And that's true in Indonesia as it is anywhere. But some of those contradictions I found particularly fascinating. You know, one of the key ones was that most Indonesians see themselves as a part of the democratic world. There's a high level of support for democracy. But then you look at the leaders around the world that they have confidence in, and they're actually authoritarian leaders. They're not democratically elected. You know, they're leaders from the Middle East that have the highest levels of confidence for Indonesians. Indonesians feel the most warmly towards Saudi Arabia, for example. But when you ask them where they want to go and travel or where they want to go and work or where they'd like to go and study, you know, the top of the list is Japan, the United States, South Korea. So some of these contradictions, I think, are really interesting when you look at most countries. But in Indonesia's case, I'm particularly fascinated because sitting here in Australia, there are a lot of expectations cast on Indonesia in terms of the role they're going to play in this future great power competition. And as Ben said, when you look at the way in which they view the world, or Evan said, you know, the way in which in some measures the United States is doing better, I think that Indonesians don't fit easily into any particular stereotype and any particular image that's being cast onto the country and the role it's going to play. If I could pull us back a, a little bit, this is a really one-of-a-kind survey, right? I mean, nobody else is surveying public opinion on foreign policy and strategic matters to this degree anywhere in Southeast Asia, and, and certainly not any other outfit in Indonesia. So maybe this is self-evident to our Australian listeners, but why has Lowy now done three of these quite comprehensive batteries of public opinion surveys in Indonesia? And quick follow-up, why has it taken 10 years since the last one? That, that's a great question. Um, so the Lowy Institute has a public opinion program. It's been running basically as long as the Institute has existed for around 18 years. The reason in the onset was because the people who ran the Institute well before my time felt quite frustrated that Australian politicians were often claiming that they had public support for all sorts of ventures overseas without really any evidence of that. There's, of course, in Australia, like in most countries, a great history of polling on domestic political issues and, you know, on education and health and all these other things, but not necessarily very much on foreign policy and views on what particular countries should do in the world. So back in 2005, we had the first ever Lowy Institute poll, which surveyed Australians on their views of the world, and that's been running every year ever since. Over the years, we've also grown that program to look at other countries, partly because, as you say, there aren't 
necessarily in-depth foreign policy surveys being run in those countries. And there are a lot of expectations associated with what those people think and what those countries think. I mean, at the Institute, we often even hear from people inside foreign governments saying, do you think you might be interested in polling here? Because we don't know what our publics think about some of these issues. And just to add to, to what Natasha was saying there, I mean, there's so many outside powers, you know, not just uh, the US and China, but Japan, the UK with its Indo-Pacific tilt, the European Union, Australia, obviously, courting Indonesia, other Southeast Asian nations. And it's really vital to understand how the publics think, even in authoritarian states, right, where the way the public sees the world, their view of other countries is going to shape the, the window of possible policies that politicians can follow. And that's even more so in Indonesia, the world's third biggest democracy. So I think it's really important to understand these things. And by repeating you know, these studies over time, you get much more useful tracking data. You can see how things have changed, which is actually much more beneficial than one-off polling, uh, where you know how people feel now, but without being able to compare that to where things were before, it's very hard to know where the trend lines are moving. Yeah, I think just to add on the Indonesian side, why there's no major uh, polling of this kind within Indonesia itself, I think it's, it's, it's quite clear that a lot of the polling agencies or those with funding uh, to pay for polling um, actually don't consider the public's views on foreign policy really that significant in terms of electoral uh, strategies or, or, or election issues. So it's not necessarily seen as a deal breaker whether or not uh, the public holds certain foreign policy views. But what we hope to show is actually that it does matter because I think it provides some parameters of how we do foreign policy, some parameters of where Indonesia has moved uh, in terms of its overall international outlook. And it's also crucial because I think what we've seen over the past two years or so, whether it's about G20, ASEAN or the Ukraine war, uh, the extent to which the Indonesian government feels it can do or accomplish uh, certain foreign policy objectives or strategies seems to be, should be better if there are strong understanding of how the public feels about the world and feels about a particular issue or a particular leader. I think this is where it's crucial for us to actually finally lay it on the table, how the Indonesian public views the world in general, but also how the public feels about foreign policy issues, about foreign policy style, about foreign policy priorities and instruments. And this is where we hope uh, we can contribute a little bit to the debate. So you polled an impressive number of people over an impressive number of provinces. 33 provinces, because we often think of Indonesia as this very diverse and spread out country. Did you come across huge variations in responses to those questions that you posed to them based on where they came from, their understanding of the issues that they were being polled on? I'm so glad you asked. You know, as you say, we surveyed 3,000 people across every province but one. One of the things that I think is really important to our surveys is to have kind of a high level, you know, what we would consider an academic level of rigor. And so we did this face-to-face, -face, you know, people at, with a natural like random door-to-door -door sampling method. And so we feel very confident in the results. And one of the things that was most striking was really the consistency across different demographic groups, across, across different regions, on so many of these questions, we would have really expected to see a divide between young and old Indonesians or between uh, Indonesians who live in more rural areas compared to urban city centres. And we really just didn't see those differences, you know, down to, you know, Indonesian men and women feel the same way about 
Indonesia's role in promoting gender equality. There, were, there was no difference there, basically. So that, that was a really striking thing. Having said that, there were a couple of interesting demographic differences that came out. Religion was one factor that played quite a significant role. And we saw differences on a range of questions as to where somebody was identified as Muslim as opposed to another religion. We also saw some differences when looking particularly at the US and China as a threat. That seemed to be influenced to some extent, or there was a difference depending on who you voted for and which party you identified with. So we saw a little bit of the politics coming into how Indonesians viewed US, the US and China. But on almost every question, and you know, we asked over 50, there was just so much consistency across the country, despite its diversity. So the way I recall seeing the initial lead for the, the poll was focusing on the leadership question. So I, I, you know, first saw this pop up on Twitter and, and everybody saying, well, you know, China is down with 22 points in trust for, for uh, China to act responsibly on the globe between 2011 and, and 2021. But it's not all good for the U.S. because the U.S. is also down still 56 percent, but it's down from from I think it was 72 in 2011. And. My first thought was, oh, well, that's, you know, this pox on both of their houses mentality is not great. And it probably speaks to how poorly we did among COVID and, and the like. But then I also stopped and thought, well, 2011 was a pretty unique moment in U.S.-Indonesia relations, given President Obama's particular connection. And particularly, I think, in the first administration, the, the warm feelings in Jakarta. I, and maybe this is a question for Evan. I don't remember when exactly Ben landed to start covering uh, Indonesia as a journalist, but... Do you think that had we actually seen a poll, say, every year between 2011 and 2021, this would actually probably look like a, a trough during the Trump years and then we started to come back up? Or do you really think there's been a steady decline? I, I, I just I wonder if, if perhaps it's unfair to Joe Biden to compare him to Barack Obama when it comes to the way Indonesians feel about the U.S. So what's interesting is that you're absolutely right that have we, had we done maybe year by year or maybe every three or four years and not. Uh, just uh, at the Obama years, but going back to the Bush years after the Iraq Iraq War, for example, right, will be down and it will go up under Obama and will go down again. I think that's that's probably right. Although we don't have one single poll that consistently tracked this, but I think that's intuitively right. A second point that's actually from our poll, which is the source of information on these issues for the Indonesian public, which is not from the mainstream media or experts, but mostly. From authority figures, the president, the military, the police, and so forth. So for me, how the Indonesian elite presents foreign policy issues, uh, whether it's about ASEAN in general or whether it's about relationship with the U.S. in particular, does matter to how the Indonesian public views it. So if, let's say, we talk about 2011 in terms of how SBY in particular tried to reach out to the U.S. and try to start up the strategic partnership stuff. So yeah, it, it would certainly make sense. And during the Trump years where there's pretty much not anything going on significantly uh, in terms of how Jokowi sees the issue, Jokowi has never actually met a U.S. president since Obama, right? In terms of like actually visiting and so forth. So for me, uh, how Jokowi and, and how the political elites actually presents the issues uh, with regards to the U.S. really does matter. So I can imagine certainly the case that you would see uh, the up and down. And I think the last few years, certainly, I think whether we like it or not, it is influenced a little bit by COVID, right? You can take that out of the head. So yes, the U.S. is in decline in general. Yes, some of it may be more closer to 
issues that they can remember like COVID, but also I think because there's a lot of optimism at the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, how the how his election, how his team was sort of presented by the Indonesian elites uh, in Indonesia as a good opportunity to bounce back from the Trump years. There's mention of the strategic partnership again. So I think that certainly helped shape some of, yes, it's down altogether, but it's still better than, uh, than China and still better than a few others. So I think that's probably why. I should throw in a note that we're recording on Monday, May 9th, and President Jokowi has never met a U.S. leader. By the time we air this... <laughs> On Thursday, President Jokowi will have finally met a U.S. leader for the first time. Though I think it actually might be a few hours after we release this, depending on when we do for the, the White House welcoming dinner. It'll be interesting if a poll were conducted right after the U.S. ASEAN summit to see whether the numbers will change in any meaningful uh, direction or not. But I guess we'll, we'll wait for the next poll, right, Natasha? I very much hope so. You know, to Gregory's point, I think that, again, you know, ideally you would be doing a survey like this every two or three years and really being able to track those shifts as there are various administrations and policies. So we're hopeful of that in the future. And to your point, Alina, there's actually some really fascinating academic research that shows there are bumps in public opinion when leaders visit various countries more often than not. So, you know, as much as we're doing this via Zoom and apparently we can do everything like this these days, those in-person visits actually do have tangible effects on how people feel about other countries. We hear that quite often where people realise that our survey was done in December and Indonesians have a relatively high level of trust in Russia, relatively high levels of confidence in Putin, and everybody says, oh, well, if it had been done a few months later, there would be a different view. But again, I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the leaders that do have high levels of confidence for Indonesians or some of the countries that they feel the most warmly towards, you know, there is uh, something there about these kind of strongman leaders and the way in which they are respected on some level by Indonesians. Our uh, our last episode was with Dino Patijalal, where we talked mostly about the G20 and, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And one of the things that I think a lot of people are trying to figure out is what exactly the public opinion within Indonesia is regarding Russia, because anecdotally, sure seems like every Indonesian on TikTok is pro-Russian, if you believe some of the sentiment analysis. Um, then again, I have serious trouble believing that that's actually true. But I do get the sense that every Indonesian elite I talk to has a different opinion on whether or not the average Indonesian citizen actually is pro-Russian at the moment or pro-Ukrainian. Yeah, I think uh, as far as I remember, in the last maybe two months, there's only one survey after the war done by Saiful Mujani on Indonesian public opinion about the war, but he never released the data. So he was just talking at the YouTube channel. So I'm not sure I, about the data and, and about the methods and so forth. But if I remember correctly, his presentation is basically saying, similarly to what we found in terms of the fact that, yes, you would expect a really bad figure for Putin in Russia, and turns out not so much, still relatively okay. And it's not really clear, I think, to me, why that's the case. I think certainly the strongman uh, tendencies uh, are there, but also because of economic profile. Now, Russia doesn't normally come as your traditional super investor in Indonesia, like Japan or, or Singapore, right? But I think, again, it's because of the major projects of what uh, they've been doing uh, in terms of high profileness, whether it's about arms or oil refinery and how the elites sort of present that as a way to maintain pragmatism of of engagement and so forth, I think that's why it's very difficult to convince the Indonesian public otherwise. But what's also interesting and sort of underexplored is the 
sense that we don't want to condemn Russia, not because what Russia is doing is right or wrong, but because we don't want to be echoing the U.S. or the West, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of anti-Western uh, sentiment, I think, is there. We don't really know how much and, and to what extent, uh, but it's certainly there. And I think that's that's why it's easier for the elites to sort of not want to condemn Russia because they're afraid to be seen as being pro-U.S., uh, which somehow, for me, doesn't make any sense because I think, to be honest today, it doesn't really cost much to be seen as pro-U.S. You won't see massive demonstrations as if, let's say, you were echoing Xi Jinping's viewpoints. So being seen as pro-Beijing tends to be more costly than pro-U.S. So I'm not really sure why that's the case. And those alignments, I think, seem to have different connotations in Indonesia, which I found really fascinating. So when you asked people if they were concerned about influence from China or influence from the United States, you know, there weren't too many that were concerned about either. It was a pretty small percentage. But when they expressed their concerns, they were really different things. You know, Indonesians that are worried about influence from China were worried about economic takeover. They were worried about Chinese workers. They were worried about too much investment. That's where most of their anxieties were about China's influence in Indonesia. On the United States, it was entirely cultural. I thought that was really fascinating where people were really worried about free love and you know, LGBTQAI issues and the United States being too open and not religious enough, those kinds of issues. And so it's interesting to me that there is this kind of concern about being too pro-US potentially, but then also... The, the way they see those concerns, I think they're framed quite differently for many Indonesians. Then maybe I can ask about the United Kingdom, because um, as you noted in the 2021 poll, the UK was not included in the last poll. And the 2021 poll, it seems that a significant number of Indonesians actually feel quite warmly towards the United Kingdom. Where do you think that's coming from? It's, it's hard to say without a, a comparative base of yeah how, how, it's, how it's come from, from where it was. Um, but I think broadly, the UK has got quite a lot of soft power in the world, music and culture and history and education. Uh, I think some of that's obviously filtered through to Indonesia, things like the English Premier League, of course. So I, I suspect that, that there's, there's some of that that, that somehow... Uh, filtered through but broadly yeah, what, what we found um, when we asked people about kind of softer questions like where, where people want to study uh, what foreign pop cultures they like where they want to work the west and kind of western friendly Asian countries did really really well overall so yeah I think it speaks to the sort of duality that Natasha was talking about there's obviously a lot of respect for, for Muslim leaders and for Saudi Arabia and various Muslim countries and a, folk, a need to or desire to focus on some Islamic foreign policy issues like supporting Palestine but then culturally you know Indonesians are picking and mixing from a much uh, kind of bigger range of influences and I think that, that that's quite natural obviously it's quite positive for the UK um, as the British government looks to, to get more influence in the region. I want to ask one final question that is uh, really a burning curiosity for me. And Alina raises at the top. The most striking finding in the entire survey is that in 2011, 63% of Indonesians felt that Malaysia was a critical external threat. And today, only 23% do. I don't know, maybe Evan, was there some terrible crisis in 2011 between KL and Jakarta that I don't remember that had Indonesians terrified of a Malaysian invasion? 
Uh, I think in in the SBY period in general, it was Ambalat, right? Ambalat was was certainly uh, high in the public sphere. Uh, SBY actually went uh, on like a scouting tour and so forth. So Ambalat was there. Sure, there's always cultural spats. I think that's that's sort of part of of the relationship, whether it's about food or batik or whatever. But I feel like we haven't actually heard about Ambalat in a long time. And I think that partly explains wh- why the decrease in, in the threat perception, I think, is, is, is there. Number two, I think over the last 10 years, uh, Indonesia and Malaysia actually have seen eye to eye on a lot of issues, whether it's about Israel-Palestine, Rohingyas, or other issues. I think we're, we're very much aligned on a lot of these issues. So I think for me, the one glaring factor that I can remember is, is, is that it's the issue of Ambalat. Uh, some other border issues around Borneo isn't really that high. Uh, I think I can only think of Ambalat as, as the most prominent one. But, and, and it's a good thing that we haven't heard about it in, in quite a while. I should, I guess, clarify for some of our listeners who might not be familiar, Ambalat is disputed uh, offshore block, right, between Kalimantan and Sabah, which is maritime result of the longstanding territorial dispute between Indonesia and Malaysia over where that border lies. Well, thanks, guys. This has been fascinating. Um, highly recommend looking at the poll if you haven't. So many questions, so many contradictions, um, but also so emblematic of Indonesia. Thank you all, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, feedback, or anything at all at searadio at csis.org. Again, that's searadio at csis.org. And we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you might have. This is only our third full episode, and we're still building our fan base. So do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever other streaming platform you may be listening to us on. And please tell your friends about us. All right. Laurel Vibitson is our producer. Our interns are Megan Sullivan, Drake Tian, and Hazen Williams. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Simon Tran-Hudis. And I'm Hazen Williams. And we will see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.